Welcome to Technovation, a weekly conversation with people who are shaping the technology landscape. I'm Peter High, president of Meta Strategy, advisor to technology executives, Forbes columnist, book author, and your host. Each episode of Technovation features insights from top executives and thought leaders at the intersection of business, technology, and innovation. If you like what you hear, we'd be grateful if you give us a rating on iTunes or through whatever other source you use for podcasts. And please subscribe so you don't miss a thing. Thank you. My guest this week is Stuart Butterfield, who I'm pleased to welcome back to the broadcast. Stuart is the co-founder and chief executive officer of Slack, a workplace messaging platform that rose to a private valuation of $7 billion prior to going public in June of 2019. The company has experienced a surge of demand due to the shift to remote work amid the coronavirus pandemic. Prior to co-founding Slack, Stuart co-founded Flickr, one of the pioneers of image sharing and the social web. In this interview, we discuss the current pandemic's impact on enterprises, including the productivity benefits and accompanying loss of socialization, how this can cause employee burnout, and what leaders can do to alleviate uncertainty. We also discuss how the pandemic has impacted the amount of Slack users positively and negatively, and the potential challenges a hybrid model of working will present. Lastly, we discuss how people are more attracted to new features versus core improvement to existing features, the main differences between Slack and Microsoft Teams, and how they can be used together, how the demand for synchronous communication can be disruptive to people's time management and their ability to focus, and a variety of other topics. Before we get to our interview, I wanted to introduce you to our sponsor, Zoho, and the company's president, Timothy Casby. Prior to taking on his current role, he was the chief information officer of a number of companies, including Reliance Industries, Sears, Intrexon, and the Warehouse Group. He's now at Zoho, a most unusual enterprise software company, and wanted to share some perspectives from it. Timothy, take it away. Nihaves, Koffer, and Ortbark wrote about consumerization of IT and its effect on job performance. Since then, the world has seen massive rollout of consumer apps that are elegantly simple, fast, and joy to use. And in many cases, both physically and psychologically addictive. So it is fair when employees ask, why do they have such beautiful systems for their photos, shopping, booking vacation homes? But the enterprise systems they use at work are often green screen, sometimes tedious and slow. David Sachs, who led companies like PayPal and Yammer, he says, voluntary adoption of technology is the new ROI. So how do you build beautiful systems for the enterprise? Behind every beautiful system, there's a great workflow. Zoho Orchestly, a cloud-based, mobile-ready workflow automation platform. Orchestly helps businesses orchestrate business workflows. In one case, for employee onboarding, we saw 67 touch points go down to 12 touch points after workflow maps were automated using Orchestly. And this is possible across your supply chain, sales, production, sourcing, and other processes. Orchestly, our code-free workflow management platform, may just help you experience voluntary adoption of technology you're working so hard to deploy, resulting in satisfied workforce that has high productivity. Thanks, Timothy. And now on to the interview. This interview was recorded in front of a virtual audience of chief information officers and chief digital officers. Stuart, thank you so much for, for, uh, to, uh, for joining us today. It's great to see you again. Nice to see you too. Pl- pleasure to 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 speak with you. Uh, someone who needs very little introduction in a setting with uh, technology executives, to say the least. Uh, but Stuart is the CEO and founder of Slack, as people will know. Uh, he is a serial entrepreneur. Um, I hope he doesn't mind my saying that he was not as successful as in, in his uh, hope to become a gaming entrepreneur. He attempted that several times. 
but is one of the sort of legendary people in terms of pivoting, uh, finding opportunities uh, in the ashes of ideas that were not necessarily as successful as he would have hoped at the launch, uh, Slack being among those. Um, Stuart, uh, thought I'd probably begin, if you don't mind, with just some questions about how you are, are uh, handling things during this uh, time of chaos. Um, how have you structured your days? I, I, I assume you're operating from home, probably not commuting or traveling as you as you typically would. But but how are you holding up during this time of of, of unprecedented, at least in our lifetime, chaos? Um, it it would be ridiculous for me to complain about anything. Uh, yeah, I have been at home. Uh, it's pretty remarkable how different it is. Um, you know, part of it is it's it's uh, it's a lot easier to get um, well. I can be three minutes from the end of a meeting and go, oh, sorry, I got to go. I'm on live TV in three minutes, as opposed to um, going from our downtown office in, in Manhattan all the way up to Midtown, which takes forever, and then going to the green room. And then, you know, for, for four minutes on the air on CNBC, it's a kind of a couple hour investment. Um, and I, I don't even know. In the last week, um, I've probably done five or six panels just earlier this morning i was on one with um uh eric yuan from from zoom and uh aaron levy and and todd uh, mckinnon from okta um but i can you know sometimes there's three of those a day and then there's a couple of customer meetings that would have been um traveling instead it's a lot more efficient i think internally so th this is a kind of an open question and I'd, I'd love to hear from others as well but um I definitely have the impression that we're much more productive right now. Um, I don't know um, if that's a permanent condition of the way that we're working now, or uh, one of my concerns is that we're burning down the social capital that we've accumulated over the last couple of years. And I don't mean burning down goodwill necessarily, but I mean, uh, we've now had, we have people start every Monday. So we've had 12 or 13 groups of employees who started uh, rather than the traditional fly to HQ for a week, regardless of where you are, we have uh, 16 offices in 10 different countries, meet a whole bunch of people, form all these connections. Um, now that's all remote. You know, the process of interviewing people and, and making the hiring decision and for the candidate to accept the offer, all those happen without in-person meetings. And my concern is, um, while the strong social ties will still be there, you know, from uh, report to manager or from peers uh, uh, laterally, the weak connections, which I think are also very important, you know, people you meet at events and offsites, cafeteria, in line for the elevator, um, you know, friends of friends, those won't be there. So as the ratio changes of employees who were there before COVID to, to after COVID, um, the dynamic might, might shift quite a bit because I think those weak relationships are really important for getting cross-functional work done um, and, and probably for morale and, and cohesion. So that's, uh, that may, I hope that doesn't turn out to be a real um, issue for us, but I got to say it's interesting time to be a leader and I'm sure it's the same for all of you. I mean, so obviously the, the COVID stuff and then just over the last couple of weeks, the political environment and, and the protests and the, um, all of the kind of emotional turmoil, both in the, I mean, for all of us as citizens, of course, but but also uh, for our employees and, and for customers. And there's just a lot going on, put it that way. And what have you, Stuart, I'd be curious what learnings you've taken in learning in leading during this time of crisis. What are some of the principles you're adhering to, to try to 
foster resilience in your team and ensure that you're managing well during what we'll get to some of the the, the remarkable growth you've experienced uh, during this period. But but what have you learned from a leadership perspective? So I don't know that this is new, but, you know, uh, I can't remember what the saying is, but you lessons are repeated until they're they're learned. Um, people hate uncertainty. Like it's just it's uh, probably an evolutionary constraint, uh, but our, our psychology just isn't built to withstand a lot of uncertainty with respect to outcomes or uncertainty with respect to causes. And I think, you know, that's you see that in the way people think economically and politically since the dawn of time. You know, it can't possibly be random that it didn't rain this year. It must be that we didn't sacrifice enough goats to please the gods. And so the gods withheld the rain. But there's always some agency that makes the decisions as opposed to this emergent result of a huge number of, of independent factors and a lot of randomness. So with this degree of change, there's obviously a lot of uncertainty. You know, that um, it's sometimes we spent so much time talking about this and thinking about it. And then employees, you know, in late April would say like, is the office going to be open next week? Um, Because I was hoping that we could still do this offsite that we were planning or something like that. Um, It's hard for people to wrap their head around. We don't know when offices will reopen. And, um, you know, just just the the sheer number of, we don't know. So the, the leadership lesson I think is, um, to ensure that we don't underestimate the degree to which that causes a lot of turmoil and, and anxiety for people and to provide the assurances and, and certainty where we can. Um, and that means over communicating. Um, I haven't done this as effectively as I feel like I should have, but I was talking to uh, the co-CEOs of Atlassian um, and in the early days, they were doing a video message to the company every day. Um, and it, they were like, don't worry about the, production quality. Don't even worry about the exact content of the message. People just want to see you show up. And so they were 60 or 90 seconds, um, maybe a, a remark about what they were doing. Um, and uh, th- so the lesson was, I really should have been doing that. I didn't do do quite enough. Um, and we have had much uh, more you know, higher cadence of all hands and, and town halls and things like that. But yeah, the uncertainty and what we can do as leaders to alleviate that is really the, the big... Um, takeaway from this. I alluded to the growth. Um, the Verge reported on in late March that uh, your concurrent users passed 10 million on March 10th, 10.5 million six days later, and then 10 days after that, 12.5 million. Um, I don't know if those are, uh, the, so I assume those are at least directionally correct. Um, yeah. So you've had a tremendous amount of growth. Of course, you've had some, you know, there's a bit of a two steps forward, one step back, since naturally there are a lot of people who've lost their jobs who some yeah. of the users as well. Um, talk a little bit about the, the mix of tailwinds versus headwinds that you're seeing um, in light of the current crisis? Yeah, that, it's really hard to tease apart all of the factors. Um, so on the one hand, uh, we saw a huge number of, of new organizations signing up to USLAC. We saw a huge surge in the number of uh, new paid customers. From existing customers, we saw a big upswing in usage at the user level, so more people using it. And then finally, at the individual user level, people were went from about 90 minutes of active usage a day um, and uh, nine hours connected to uh, close to 12 hours connected and two hours of active usage. So a big, you know, the, the average um, amount of utilization went up. Um, and meanwhile, we're, we're making product changes and there's new marketing campaigns happening. And obviously there's a uh, shift in comms um, and then you start to see 
because we have 122,000 customers and uh, you know, close now to, to 50-50 US and the rest of the world, we have a huge business in, in Japan um, and pretty sizable one in Europe. Uh, a whole mix of, on the enterprise side, some people are really speeding up adoption and making decisions much more quickly and deciding to roll something out. Um, but also people starting to step back, uh, budgets start starting to um, come under pressure, um, a little bit more hesitancy in people making decisions. But the really dynamic part is in the SMB world. So obviously with that 122,000 customers, most of them are smaller businesses. Um, and uh, already seen an uptick in, in churn that we assume is due to, to bankruptcies. But the biggest single factor, I think, has actually been a lack of um, expansion that we would have otherwise anticipated. Because at this point, you know, with that number of customers and this many years in business, it's relatively predictable if you look at a whole cohort, um, the rate at which they'll expand over time. Um, and across all cohorts are like, you know, mature, when I say mature, I mean, people who signed up, you know, let's say two, two or three years ago, um, and people who signed up six months ago. Um, that expansion isn't materializing. So the way that we interpret that is um, where there aren't layoffs, there's hiring freezes. Um, and and those, those companies aren't growing um, in the way that they would have on average. And so when our customers feel the pain, we do too. And um, I think... Again, probably a common experience for everyone. There's a little bit of that moment where the coyote runs over the edge of the cliff. And as long as he doesn't look down, he doesn't start falling yet. Um, with the stock markets and with the unemployment numbers, um, and obviously with the completely uneven impact of, of the COVID crisis on the um, business, different kinds of businesses. So your travel and hospitality hit incredibly hard right away. A handful of players benefiting from it, many kind of unchanged. They've never seen anything that uneven. And so the downstream effect, the kind of knock-on um, that we'll see materialize over the next six or 12 months is A, very hard to predict. And, and I think um, probably more severe impact than is apparent right now, just because there's so many signals um, and, and, uh, I guess there's just there's a lot going on, you know. Because aside from that, just in the last two weeks, you know, kind of a, a political upheaval in the U.S. that we haven't seen since like '67, '68. So yeah, interesting time to be a leader. Interesting time to be a citizen, I guess. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. You, you also are in the throes of um, overhaul, going through one of the biggest overhauls uh, of your product, so the design, a big revamp. Um, uh, it's going to include a focus on simplification, customization, as I understand it. Um, can you talk a little bit about your your vision for the product as it evolves? Yeah. Um, so I don't think it's changed at all as a result of the um, of the you know, everyone working from home, um, but it definitely does highlight differences in the relative importance of things. And I think for us. The most important thing is always the basics, um, and they're typically the ones that that we, as expert users of our own product, will notice the least. You know, it's it's hard to put yourself really in the mindset of someone who's brand new to the product, um, and someone who doesn't have a very deep and intimate understanding of the whole, you know, the back end data model and and how all the features should work, um, or all of the shortcuts and workarounds that we've developed that that customers are unlikely to discover. Um, but also just uh, 
employees are always more attractive or attracted to the new thing that they could be working on than kind of core improvements to the to the existing thing. Um, and I like to think about that. I talk about that internally as foundational versus superficial features. And I, I don't mean superficial in, in any kind of negative way, but um, I'll give you an example that's outside of Slack to, to make the point. Uh, a year and a half ago or something like that, um, my fiance, we kind of split time between San Francisco and New York. And she, she, she's more in New York and I'm more in San Francisco. She got a mirror. I don't know. Maybe you've seen these things advertised on Instagram. It's um, a monitor inside of a, a like full length mirror and there's an app and you have a personal trainer who shows up and you do these exercises. And um, she, she had one in New York. She asked me to get one in San Francisco and I tried to buy it and I got an error message. And then I thought, Oh, well, that's weird. And I tried the next day to buy it. And I got another error message and I couldn't figure it out. So finally I wrote to their customer support people and they said, Oh, I'm sorry. You used your email address, but you had previously used that to make a guest account on her thing. So I said, okay, fine. So they fixed it and I, I ordered it and I got it. Um, the hardware is, is nice. It's attractive. Um, it's actually it's surprising how well the video screen works through the mirror. Um, the content is great. Um, the whole thing is amazing. It is also the worst hardware device at, at pairing with Bluetooth things that I've ever seen. And you kind of need a heart rate monitor to do it. And unlike everything else, which just kind of works with a heart rate monitor, this one doesn't. Um, so I don't know, it's a little bit of an elaborate example, but while they didn't fix the purchase stuff, while they didn't fix the accounts, while they didn't fix payments and they didn't fix this you know, core part of the experience, which is pairing with Bluetooth devices, they added all these crazy new features on top. Um, and I can, I can see from the, from the outside, um, you know, the same dynamic that, that we see that people are attracted to something that's new, that's innovative, that's exciting. Um, and then you look at something that's, you know, big kind of refactor or um, messy cleanup of, of existing stuff and people will always gravitate towards, towards the new things. Um, and so I think a lot of software products end up with a huge number of superficial features, the value of which customers don't really realize because they're they're stuck with the foundational problem um, that it's hard for them to, to get around. Yeah, that's interesting. You mentioned earlier, Stuart, that, um, you know, the, the preponderance of your customers um, are, are still small and medium-sized businesses, but you've made great inroads now uh, into the enterprise space as well. Talk a bit about that evolution, obviously most relevant for some of the people who are gathered here. Yeah. Yeah. And, and to be clear, um, it's, it's not disproportionately small business. It's just there's only 500 companies in the Fortune 500, for example. So, you know, definitionally, whatever we're at now, 121,900 and uh, sorry, 121,500 of ours can't be in the Fortune 500. Um, but yeah, recently, our, our last quarter, we announced uh, Amazon um, site license and Verizon. Um, uh, Continued kind of success in uh, financial services. So it was the man group last time, but insurance nationwide, um, consumer banking like HSBC and, and Capital One. Um, the one of the interesting ones was just before all this started, um, we, uh, we had got a huge contract with the Department of Veterans Affairs. So about 20,000 people using Slack and they were our, um, you need a sponsor to, to become FedRAMP. Uh, compliant. So they were the agency that, that sponsored us. There's about a dozen federal agencies using Slack. But this was just before the crisis hit, and they operate the biggest um, integrated healthcare 
provider in the in the United States, and obviously just like a massive organization. Um, so really interesting to hopefully be helpful for them in what was a very disruptive transition that we that we all went through. Um, but for a, a company like that, or sorry, not a company, but an organization like that that has um, these accretive layers of, of legacy systems, you know, going back to almost certainly some mainframes, uh, almost certain, certainly some like code that's written in assembler that no one can understand at this point and it's a black box and you can't break it. And then just layers of, of technology um, on top of that, the challenges of modernizing that are really um, significant. And when you take away one of the most important tools that people had, which was in-person collaboration, um, it's there's such a rapid evolution required. And I actually think they've been, certainly the people that we've interacted with have been phenomenal. I've, I've been really uh, happy as a, as a taxpayer and a citizen. Um, but it is, you know, almost the canonical example of a giant government bureaucracy. I don't mean bureaucracy in a, in a critical way. It's just that's, there is no other uh, description. Um, if they're able to develop some agility in the face of this stuff, um, everyone is. And it, the interesting thing for me is we do employee engagement surveys, like probably many of you, um, and I've talked to, to many others. And what we've seen post-crisis is really this U-shaped response where if the um, the the bottom axis is seniority, uh, executives and senior leaders are actually not, never mind death and pandemic and and an economic collapse, you know, the, the anxiety that comes with that. When thinking about their their work setup, um, they're generally pretty happy. You know, not having to travel is a huge um, um, kind of productivity unlock. Uh, makes for a little bit more pleasant lifestyle. But it's not just that I don't travel. In the old days, it was this is a tough one. We should all really get together, but you know. Um, Tamar's in Australia, but by the time she gets back, Cal's going to be in um, in the UK, and so we can't schedule this thing for three weeks. Now it's just like, okay, whenever can we do it in fifteen minutes? Um, the individual contributors, the people lower down in the organization, are also quite happy. I think probably because of the lack of a commute. Um, we have offices here in the Bay Area uh, and in New York and and Toronto and. Um, Tokyo and London, so all, all places that have pretty miserable commutes. So those people are pretty happy. The middle managers are unhappy. Um, and that's a pattern that we've seen replicated everywhere. And I think middle management always is, is a tougher job. Um, but I think it's exacerbated in this environment um, because a lot of the tools aren't there. And so whenever we see challenges, we see opportunities and, and not just an opportunity necessarily to mitigate the, the negative effect. So to bring it back to the baseline, um, but to kind of try to reimagine management. I mean, management in, the, in a broad sense of so people management, but also just how you report, um, how you plan, how you manage. Um, and so many of the tools and instruments that we all have in common, you know, they weren't handed down from on high. They were just kind of randomly evolved the, the daily stand up and the status report and the quarterly business review and the road mapping sessions and the you know all the um kind of all the reasons that people make slide decks to present at meetings to get everyone else up to speed um there's an opportunity to step back and, and say given that these uh no one ever told us these are perfect what is the the global maxima like what how how much more could we improve that and obviously for everyone 
huge increase in the requirement for discipline and rigor around communication um, because not everyone can be in the same room at the same time. Uh, as just talking to uh, to Todd McKinnon, the CEO of Okta, who had his board meeting yesterday, and they switched to um, they still had slides, but they switched to a memo format um, for this one and uh, most productive and effective board meeting they've had. And I was like, oh, that's amazing. Our board meetings on Friday, um, and we just sent out the memo on the weekend. Um, we also did that. Uh, because if we're going to spend that much time together, if we're going to invest like, like we are um, having this call right now, it's much more effective to get uh, on the same page or kind of have that shared consciousness going in. So a lot of the, the trivial questions are answered uh, in advance so that the more substantive stuff can can happen in the discussion. Because I'm sure we're all just exhausted from from the number of calls. As soon as this is over, I'm sure you're all going to get on Zoom for something else. Um, and if you're anything like me, I'm just stupid by 6 p.m. or 6.30. Like, I just, I can't do anything else. Like, my cognitive capacity is completely used up. And that, that wasn't the case. So um, one of the things we're looking at is do we want to introduce artificial um, kind of mechanisms to slow things down a little bit. Uh, I don't mean to destroy productivity, but to give us a bit more stamina um, and, and staying power. So, sorry, those are all very long answers. And Peter, feel free to interrupt at any time because otherwise I will just answer one question. <laughs> no, I appreciate that. It's very, very uh, good to get your thoughts on a variety of different topics there. I want to remind people, if, if you have a question, please submit it uh, through the chat directly to me through the, uh, the chat at the bottom uh, of the screen. Stuart, you've alluded to some of the changes, uh, many of them actually positive, uh, the lack of commuting, the, the, the ability to go from this conversation we're having into immediately into uh, other meetings or, or productive work uh, instead of having to get back into the car to take you uh, from uptown to downtown uh, in New York or, or across Silicon Valley to different meetings with a lot of lost time. You also talk about the, the fact that it's quite tiring to go from meeting to meeting to meeting without sort of the breaks that sometimes actually those those commutes even can come, can provide to the brain in just a different environment. Um, have you put some thought into the changes that are indelible, uh, those that are likely to stay, as opposed to the ones that are more likely to snap back? I know at least through the what I've read um, in interviews that you've given recently, not you know gone as far as Jack Dorsey has, for instance, and suggesting that no one need come back to the office if they don't want, to, for instance. But, but uh, but talk a bit about what you think with, uh, regarding the changes that have happened. Which ones are likely to stick in your mind? Um, yeah. So some of these are changes that that I feel confident are going to be to the upside, to the positive. Um, but to a certain extent, there's uh, there's some changes that we'll make, and and I think others will too, that uh, are made because you're forced to make them as opposed because you went through this long deliberation and examination of all the options and then decided on this because we exist in a marketplace for talent. And so if you imagine um, a lot of our peer companies and people with whom we commun uh, compete like, like Twitter and like Square, so both the companies that Jack leads, um, but, you know, Facebook and Stripe and Shopify and um, a lot of other companies when they say we're going to let people work remotely or we're going to let people have a high degree of flexibility with respect to the number of times they come into the office, we don't really have the option anymore of saying, well, at Slack, we're going to demand or expect that people come into the office every day and we're not going to hire any remote workers because first, um, we're, you know, they're opened up to a huge pool of talent that we're not. So people who live in Nashville or, um, 
or in, in Dallas or, you know, Atlanta or places where we don't have offices, um, they're also in a better position to recruit from a pool of potential employees, even where we do have offices like the Bay Area and, and New York, um, because some of those population, if they don't, if they haven't decided that they want to move somewhere else, they at least want the optionality. You know, that if you have a two equal um, opportunities, but one gives you the option to be able to travel for a couple months a year while still working. And this one has a huge advantage. And then last, of course, um, we have a couple thousand employees. Many of them, this has been life altering. Many of them have already decided, look, I want to be able to move back to the Midwest or, or wherever. I want to move somewhere to be closer to family um, or wow, I'm done living in an apartment. I want to live somewhere where I can see a lake. Um, and uh, those people will leave and, and join one of our, our competitors. So uh, there's a pretty heavy game theory element to, to that kind of decision-making that I think is unavoidable. That was It's a series of tweets from the CEO of a company called GitLab. And GitLab is, um, I think, about 1,500 employees. And I think generally regarded as the largest all-distributed, all-remote company in the world. Um, and uh, he he wrote this he great series of observations that are basically, I'm warning you all now, those of you who are imagining you're going to come back to a hybrid of, of in-office workers and uh, remote or distributed workers, here's all of the challenges that will come with that hybrid model. Um, and there's a bunch of little, there's things that he links out, out to and, and other people's um, reports and observations that are, that are really interesting. But um, those are, I think, really significant challenges because while we're all working from home, it's a it's a great equalizer. Um, I like probably you all have this set to the gallery view, so I see you have a Brady Bunch series of squares. Um, all of you have had the experience in the past of um, being the only remote person. So there's seven people in a conference room, and you're on the road. And the, no matter what you do, the microphones are never evenly distributed. It's almost impossible to hear some people. And because you have a couple hundred milliseconds of delay and they're all in person, they have this natural flowing conversation and it's hard to interject. And it's just like, it's, it's very taxing. So, uh, Toby Lucka, the, uh, CEO of Shopify, when he announced that Shopify was becoming, in his terms, a digital by default, uh, organization, one of the examples he mentioned might seem trivial, but it was if you have five people in the office and, and two people remote, um, those five people are not going to go into a conference room and sit around a table and then uh, dial in the other two. Everyone's going to go sit in their own desk or in a phone booth and dial into the call separately so that we're all equal. We all have our own tile. Um, and again, you know, that might really seem like not a very significant or important change, but I think it speaks to the uh, the differences in methodology that we'll have to adopt in order to support that hybrid way of working. And again, that's, that's a decision that we've now made because uh, I, to be clear, I think it's the right decision as well, but I, I don't think we really had a choice about whether to make it if we want to be able to, to uh, retain current employees and, and be able to compete in the market. One of the CIOs in attendance for this live broadcast indicated that his company is a big user of Microsoft Teams. He indicated his company's volume of Teams use is up 500 or 600% since March, and he doesn't see that changing. He asked if there is something that Stuart believed Teams users were missing by not using Slack. Well, I'll, I'll take it in two parts. So one on the pricing issue, because I think that um, it would be uh, 
penny wise and pound foolish to make the decision on that basis. I think there's actually, there's good reasons to choose teams. Um, we also see an enormous number, probably the majority of our enterprise customers uh, are using Teams and Slack alongside one another to just for, for different purposes. But the, on the pricing one, I think this is actually a really important point and, and underappreciated. So your job um, is more or less 100% communication, you know, either one-on-one conversations, meetings, reading and writing messages, all of that. And whoever in your organization spends the least amount of time in communication, it's still going to be 30 or 40% of their job. Um, and if you look at all of that communication, and maybe the average is like, I don't know, 70% of your employees' time. Um, if you look at it, a lot of it is not the really interesting, creative, strategic stuff. It's basic acts of, of uh, coordination. Um, it The status report and the updates and the uh, daily standups and you know, everything that a project manager does, but just a you know, huge number of the meetings uh, and the conversations are to uh, help people get on the same page. And to be clear, I don't think that's a waste of time. I think that's essential because human beings are, you know, it's like herding cats. It's, it's very difficult to keep people aligned. But if you, to make it a, a simple uh, example, arithmetically, imagine you have a 10,000 person company um, and the total cost of employment is about $100,000. So you're spending a billion dollars on payroll and half of that is going towards just that, you know, those really basic conversations about communication. Any leverage you can get on that is, has a disproportionate impact to your top line productivity um, that's unrivaled by any other change that you could make. So, I mean, even a, a 1% inflection there uh, is, uh, is an enormous uh, shift in ROI. And I, I've had this conversation with at least one of you in the past um, to think about software investment on a per employee per year basis as something that is just monotonically increasing that has for decades, it will continue to do so. The number of different applications you have in use is increasing. The number of minutes that people spend using software every day is increasing. The number of software companies that exist in the world is increasing. The number of software companies with more than 10 million or $100 million or a billion dollars of revenues, they're all increasing. So, and none of that is stopping in 2020, right? Like it, it's been since the early 70s, there's been a, a one-way path there. Um, as that happens, you know, we spend a little over $14,000 per employee per year on software. And I don't mean server licenses or data center or anything, I mean, but just, just software. Um, and we're uh, definitely, uh, I don't know exactly, but I would, if I had to guess, I would say top decile um, because we're a newer company, we're, we're in tech, we're uh, more tech, tech forward. But I suspect for all of you, it's going to be at least $5,000 per employee per year. So um, hopefully all of that is smart spend, uh, not in the sense that you get like a, a 30% return for it, but in the sense you get a 5x or a 10x. You know, the, the best use cases of computing um, in, in business were taken up a long time ago because computers, computers are just so much better at us than doing arithmetic. They're so much better at us than remembering stuff. So databases and accounting software were really early. Um, but now we buy tools that plug into our marketing automation software and we buy, um, God, the, I'll, I'll skip to the most telling example. Um, there's now dozens of companies competing in the category of SaaS management tools. So like spend management and renewal management and like compliance management, just for the thousand different cloud services you have in use. All right. So with all that as background, I mean, I think if you're not getting 
a hundred X ROI from most of the software investments, then there, I think there's something um, fundamentally wrong. Um, the other question though, I think it's, here's the differences as I see them between teams and, and Slack. One is there's a bunch of stuff that teams doesn't do. Uh, sorry, that teams does that, that Slack doesn't do. And that's what we're doing right now. It's the alternative to Zoom. It's voice and video conferencing. It's conference room integration. Um, you know, everything that the people who are migrating from Skype for business are, are using Teams for. And from what we've seen, that's by far the biggest use case. Like that's 80 or 90% of the usage. Um, there is another category of stuff that, that's similar to, to things that Slack does, but it's in a slightly different direction. Um, it's the start page for Office. So if your job is to collaborate around the Office file types, like redlining contracts in Word or working in presentations, um, and you use SharePoint, then I think Teams is a huge step forward in that experience. It's just a, it's a much easier way to organize and collaborate on, on those files. And Office has no other start page, and there's not really any other alternative. Like it, Outlook is already does enough stuff, you know, you wouldn't want it to be Outlook. Um, and there's things that Slack does that are similar to that, but in different dimensions that aren't about the office file types, but instead are about, you know, for engineering, continuous integration testing tools. For IT, it's um, tickets and, and uh, management. For um, operations teams, it's a lot of monitoring and alerting. So there's a whole bunch of use cases that are uh, for those employees who don't spend that much time on the office file types, but spend time on other uh, platform capabilities. Um, and then the third place use case, again, this is, we're on the outside, so we don't have perfect knowledge of this, but the third place use case for Teams is the stuff that Slack does, which is you create a channel for everything that's happening across the company, and now everyone knows where to go to ask a question, everyone knows where to give their update, everyone knows where to go to ca get caught up. And when we look at our biggest customers, um, uh, IBM is the largest that is also most mature. Uh, so it's 350,000 people. There are tens of thousands of workspaces with millions of channels between them. And there's consolidated administrative control over all of that. And so they end up with a structure that actually mirrors the structure of the, uh, the organization. Um, and that's just not possible in teams. Like it, it's, it's much more for the work group level because an individual instance is limited to 5,000 people, but 5,000 people is an irrelevant limit when you're limited to 200 channels, um, you know, even at 2,100 employees or whatever we have, we have about 20,000 channels. So if we try to do that in one team's um, instance, it would, you know, we'd have a limit of 1%. Um, so there's that. If it's important for this to be able to, to kind of uh, break down silos at the level of a large organization, there's no alternative to Slack. And that's why we've never, uh, lost an enterprise customer to Teams because you just can't do that in Teams. And again, that's not to say that Teams isn't valuable. I think there's a whole bunch, like I said, a whole bunch of stuff that Teams does that Slack doesn't do. And you do see them used alongside each other. Uh, and almost always that's Slack for written communication and Teams for, for video. Um, the last thing I would say is increasingly important has been um, shared channels and the kind of the networks that form. So, uh, in January, Jen Tejada, who's the CEO of PagerDuty, hosted a dinner. She invited a bunch of SaaS company, like Bay Area CEOs. Um, because that email thread was just sitting there, someone picked it up in like late February, early March and, and said, Hey, everyone, are you actually, are you really thinking about shutting down your offices? Like, what are we going to do here? And then that, that turned into this big email thread 
which turned into a Zoom call that we have every week. That's kind of a you know support group almost, um, but also just a way to, to share some some intelligence. Um, and now there's 18 companies, including Slack, participating all all public uh, SaaS companies. Um, but the real turning point was we made we created a, a, a well, there'll be a better marketing name for this, but what's called a multi-org shared channel. So um, it's Twilio and Shopify and Atlassian and Okta and um, Box and CrowdStrike and Cloudflare and or I can go down the, the whole list. Um, but with one exception, all of them are already Slack um, customers. Slack was the principal tool that they use for communication. So having this kind of private network inside of Slack with still your own message retention policies, with your own reporting capabilities, with your DLP integrated, with the e-discovery tools, um, uh, and coming soon, independent uh, EKM, uh, it created this... Uh, new kind of communication media, which couldn't have been realized any other way. Like it, if it was a WhatsApp thread that it would have been for me anyway, mixed in with all of my like European friends and it would have been separate and independent. It also, of course, wouldn't, you know, uh, the companies wouldn't have had any visibility into that, even be aware that it was happening. Um, it couldn't have been emailed because the threading is terrible and it would just be mixed in with all the other uh, junk that we have to clear out in, in email. Um, and of course, obviously people joining, you know, the, the 11th person to join and the 12th person to join, 13th person, they wouldn't have had any of the history. So um, there's really no alternative to that. And it's been one of the few times we've developed something where I've been surprised on the upside, because usually I think this new feature is going to change everything. Like this is going to be amazing. Um, and then it comes out and it's good, but it doesn't, the world doesn't actually change. This is one of the ones where uh, I've actually been surprised in the other direction. Uh, and shortly after, suddenly we created channels for all of the CMOs who were thinking like, there's no field marketing, there's no events, how do we generate pipeline? And then there was a channel for all the CHROs and heads of people where the conversation was like, how are you doing recruiting in a world where people can't meet face-to-face? -face? And, and uh, how are you managing onboarding new employees in this all remote environment? And then there was another one for CFOs who were like, how are you approaching planning in a world where you know, th there's this much macro uncertainty? And all of those that kind of like little closed private networks um, are, are things that have no analog. Um, there are hundreds of thousands of shared channels in use. Um, the multi-org stuff is brand new. So most of it is one organization to another and companies like uh, uh, Netflix um, have insisted on using shared channels to collaborate with creative agencies. Um, we have seen other organizations have huge success in um, in customer success programs and sales relationships that are carried out through shared channels when both sides are using Slack. Um, the MLB conducted the draft this year through uh, shared channels because MLB has been a user for a long time and, the, and so are the clubs. Um, and that's just not something that I anticipate coming to teams in the next three years, kind of at a minimum, just because of the, the way that it's configured that, you know, there's a SharePoint in an Office 365 group. Another CIO in the audience asked Stuart about leadership. She asked if he'd seen any changes in his decision-making process in terms of speed, as well as changes to who he gets inputs from now that everyone is working from home. So uh, quality, we'll see. There's, there's always a longer lag to, to get the evaluation there. Um, speed has definitely increased. Um, and I don't, I'm trying to 
when I was listening to the question, I was trying to think of, of uh, if I've changed who I'm listening to. Um, I'm not sure that I have, but I'm not even sure what to attribute this to. And part of it is going to be the lack of travel, um, but decisions are being made much more quickly. You know, I think there's a lot of, um, maybe it's a, a sense of urgency that comes from the crisis. Like psychologically as humans, we all just get into a very different mode. Um, so a lot of the, you know, the end of the meeting where people will say like, well, that sounds really interesting. You know, maybe um, we can put together some of the options and we'll circle back in a few weeks and, and go through them. That, that kind of stuff just doesn't happen. Like there's, there's not that same um, deferring decisions until later or, or, you know, asking for more study or, or input, um, which means that just everyone's making the decisions faster. The other thing that uh, we're starting to see, but I, that I feel like it's going to be really promising is, um, a shift from what we've seen historically. So unified communications has been a category for 20-ish years, same time and link, communicator, Skype for business, um, all the Cisco stuff. And Zoom and Slack are, are what happens when you unbundle some of those things and they start to go off in different directions. But our imagination is often influenced by, if not limited to, to what we've seen in the past. So the last 20 years of unified communication has been one thing. The next 20 years are unlikely to be the same thing. And I think a lot of the stuff that we've seen in the consumer world, so the uh, India and Brazil's kind of heavy reliance on WhatsApp's model of tap to record and release to send um, for audio communication is something that we haven't seen show up in enterprise in, in a wide widely deployed way yet, um, but I would expect to. And if you imagine like the, if you have a daily standup meeting, 9 a.m. to 9.05, um, everyone was probably in the middle of doing something at 8.59 and they had to switch to do this. Um, if you think about everything that Snapchat has ever done, but also um, Instagram stories, um, uh, video messaging in Instagram, the ease of um, producing that kind of asynchronous video and the ease of consuming it is something that we also haven't seen show up in enterprise, but seems like it would be enormously valuable. And there's at least one company, Loom, that has been successful at, a, at a, some degree of scale with this because why can't I can't, uh, record my update at 8.36, you know, and then listen to everyone else's at 9.51 because I was in the middle of doing something else. There's no real reason why that you know, unlike this conversation, um, which is going to be much better synchronously, um, those ones didn't have to be. And the demand for synchronous communication um, can be really disruptive to people's time management and, and ability to focus. So that's something that we're looking at really closely. But also, there's just like a uh, hundred, well, maybe hundreds of, of startups that are experimenting with that. And I think that'll something that'll that'll percolate a lot, and that should both. Um, even if it's neutral with respect to the quality of decisions, it will be massively impactful um, in the communication of those decisions and the, and the way that those that that's distributed. Because that often that can just take the decision could have been made you know in April and it doesn't show up for a lot of employees until May or early June. And there's a lot of kind of scatter and and lack of alignment in the intervening time. So when those are much more easily distributed to people, much more widely understood early in the process, I think that can be transformative to the degree of alignment you have. And if it's transformative to the degree of alignment, it's ultimately transformative to the degree of agility and your ability to respond, especially in an environment that's this dynamic. Great. Well, Stuart Butterfield, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been been great yeah. to hear about uh, you know how you've been withstanding things during this uh, this time of, of, of chaos and crisis. Uh, thank you for sharing a bit about your journey and sort of where you see things heading. Thanks for tuning in. 
Please join me on Monday when my guest will be Archie Deskus, the Chief Information Officer of Intel.